Thank you very much. And uh, again, I'd like to echo uh, our thanks to Samita Mukherjee for inviting me to participate in this fantastic event. I've, I've really enjoyed it so far and really learning lots. And it's um, really nice to see people here and hearing about the research in this and the, the activism that's going into this as well. It's really good, uh, really, really sort of learning a lot. OK. Um, so last year, in um, 2017, India celebrated its 70th anniversary uh, of independence. And women have played an important role, uh, as we heard from Smita's paper earlier, in both in achieving independence and in crafting and governing a new nation. India is considered the world's largest democracy, and it has much to be proud of in terms of building and sustaining democracy. But ever since the first general election in India, the proportion of women MPs has not risen above 12% uh, in the lower house of the Indian parliament. In fact, if you were to take all of the individual women MPs elected to the Lok Sabha, the lower house, which has 543 elected seats, they would not fill a single Lok Sabha, okay? So over the years since 1952. Furthermore, uh, since the 1990s, a third of seats in local councils or panchayats have been reserved for women. So they've got gender quotas at the local level. And in some states, this has been increased to 50% more recently. So with larger numbers of women in politics in local government um, due to gender quotas, the low presence of women in parliament and state assemblies are now becoming an anomaly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to present some of the findings um, from a new book on women MPs and the Indian Parliament um, that I co-authored with my uh, colleague, Professor Shireen Rai, based at Warwick, and who was part of the project that um, Sarah, or led the project that Sarah mentioned as well. Um, the paint, what I'm going to do today is it begins, I begin by situating women's participation in Indian politics historically, taking off from where Samita uh, left us earlier before discussing some achievements and challenges for women in contemporary party and parliamentary institutions, strategies and challenges for getting into and staying in representative politics, experiences, experiences of contesting elections, issues of difference, diversity and visibility um, among women MPs as they relate to representation and claim making, uh, public institutional memory, and also memorialisation um, of the contribution of women MPs. And I thought it was particularly interesting, um, the tour that we were given just now of the New Dawn um, exhibition. And talk a little bit about debates and committees. Um, so quite a lot to cover, so hopefully um, I won't go too far over time. Uh, at all. At all over time. <laughs> at all. Okay, so um, while I'm principally focusing on uh, the deeply gendered institution of Parliament, I'm also going to be providing some contextual links to gender arenas of party politics, India's multi-level democracy, um, and some public discourse um, as well. Okay, um, so... So just uh, following on from where Samita um, was talking earlier about um, the first time that women were allowed to vote and contest in India, um, so partial suffrage for women in 1921 in Madras province, um, the celebrated freedom fighter Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay narrates the moment in pre-independence India when women were faced with the first opportunity to participate as candidates in elections. She says in her memoirs, uh, with the removal of the ban in 1927 as contestants, the Madras State Provincial Legislature threw open its membership to women when there were only a few weeks left for a fresh election. Though a constitutional victory had been scored, the question was who would have the temerity to contest 
with so little time to prepare, it was bound to be an unequal contest, as the candidates selected by the various parties for the election were already busy in the campaign, it seemed too late and would need a bulldog courage for a woman to venture into the fray. And that courageous task fell to Kamla Devi. And she was persuaded by a fellow women activists to contest a seat uh, in the Madras Legislative Council. But uh, by her own account, she lost by a very small margin of 55 votes. But she herself was not too disappointed. She thought that actually her campaign manager was probably more disappointed um, than her. And I've just got a, a picture of the memoir up here of um, the first elected woman, um, as Samita mentioned her earlier, Muthalakshmi Reddy, that's uh, in the British Library as well. And she, uh, she was nominated um, to the, the Leg Legislative Council. And you know, just because um, you know, first woman in uh, the Legislative Council, and she was also then nominated as a deputy speaker, so no pressure there to uh, learn the ropes pretty quickly. Um, and this is also a woman uh, who was um, uh, served in the Constituent Assembly and the first uh, parliament. So just to provide some brief background on the parliamentary system in India, it follows a Westminster parliamentary system with some adjustments. The national parliament is made up of the Lok Sabha, or the House of the People, um, very much like the Green from the House of Commons, but a U-shape rather than um, adversarial. Um, although it is adversarial, don't get me wrong. Uh, the Rajya Sabha, uh, the upper house, which is the Council of States, um, and I'll talk a bit about how that's elected in a moment. The president also signs off bills, prorogues parliament, etc. Now, there's 543 seats, elected seats, in the Lok Sabha. It's first past the post, like the UK, and there's usually a sort of five-year term. Um, and if you do the maths, 543 elected seats with the average 1.2 billion people. The average constituency is thus more than about two, um, 2 million people. So that's a huge, huge constituency. In the Rajya Sabha, it's a smaller chamber, less than 300 MPs in the Rajya Sabha. The majority, aside from a smaller number of members that are nominated by the president, are indirectly elected by the members of the sub-national legislative assemblies, so the provinces uh, or the states. And they're elected in stages. A third of the members retire every two years, and they, they may be re-elected. Um, the Rajya Sabha does not dissolve in the same way that the Lok Sabha does. And that's actually had some implications for some gender quota legislation that they've tried to introduce in the Rajya Sabha because it doesn't dissolve rather than the Lok Sabha where they're worried about the bill passing out at the end of term. One more point to, to mention about this, the quasi-federal system uh, in India, um, as I mentioned, it involves the national parliament, state assemblies and local councils. Who is in power in the state level governments can determine which MPs get elected to the Rajya Sabha. Um, and because state elections do not always coincide with national elections, this keeps that Lok Sabha, Rajya Sabha relationships or dynamic over time in between uh, national elections. Gender quotas have existed at the local level since 93-94, whereby a third of all seats were reserved for women, uh, rotating after one term, but there's no gender quotas yet at the national state level, and attempts have been made since 96 to introduce legislation. They got the closest <coughs> they'd, ever, they'd ever got when in 2008 they introduced legislation, and in 2010 it was passed in one house only, but it never got to the other house and it was never passed. So that's the closest that they've come to getting gender quotas in. And just to kind of inform who is in politics, and we'll go into the party politics in a second, and the Congress party have dominated for many years, Party of Independence, um, but since the mid-60s, but especially the late 80s, um, you've had a party fragmentation, lots more parties involved. Okay, so, um, voter turnout. 
Uh, we talked a little bit about um, when women got the vote in India. Um, as you can see, from 1962, which was the first time that the Election Commission actually provided gender disaggregated data, um, women and men's uh, voter turnout has had a gap, but it has actually uh, closed um, more recently in the last sort of um, 10, uh, 15 years or so. And um, that is partly, I think, to do with efforts of the Election Commission. They've introduced women-only polling stations, voter education and awareness programmes. Um, Wendy Singer argues that the Election Commission early on took a strong interest in women's voting and participation in elections because it was seen as a marker of democracy. And internationally, they wanted to showcase the fact that they were, they were a vibrant democracy. The interesting thing about voter turnout, I've got male and female here, but in following a Supreme Court judgment in 2014, the 2014 Lok Sabha election was the first parliamentary election in India to include the category of others in addition to male and female, um, recognising non-binary candidates and voters uh, and electors. Okay, moving on. So women in the Lok Sabha... Um, has never managed the presence of women candidates and elected as MPs in the Lok Sabha. It's been gradually increasing over time, but not by much and not fast enough for many. Um, I've deliberately used a large axis here to show the scale of the minority, right? If we put 33% right at the top, it looks like there's actually more women than there are, but it really is a tiny proportion. It doesn't go much above 10% there. And um, the Raja Sabha is... <coughs> Also, even though the Lok Sabha's gone up slightly over time, the Raja Sabha has fluctuated. It's actually higher in the 1980s than in the 1990s. So again, just a reminder that um, women's presence in political institutions is never guaranteed. That fluctuates and uh, it goes against kind of incremental arguments that it will naturally increase over time. However, there are a number of very uh, senior women in Indian politics. We have a, a number of visible women at the top, president of the Congress party, um, president of different parties, union ministers, um, chief ministers, all different kinds of women, um, and women in parliamentary leadership. Now, this woman on the left was the deputy chairperson, the only elected, the highest elected position to run the Indian parliament in, in the Raja Sabha, um, because the chairperson of the Raja Sabha, equivalent to the speaker, is the Vice President of India. Okay, so that's his ex officio sort of position. She was Deputy Chairperson for um, a period in the 80s right through to um, uh, 2007, I think. Uh, I haven't got it written down, but it was about 17 years, and she's had very active roles in IPU as well. This is Mira Kumar. She was the first female speaker elected to the Lok Sabha in 2009, and she was followed by another female speaker, uh, Sumitra Mahajan. Um, uh, in uh, in 2014. I'll skip the next slide because it shows something similar, but again, it just shows the majority. These are all men, right? And then these are women up here. So it's slightly, it's getting slightly larger over time, but really the, the dominance of men continues in elections. Parties, uh, it differs among parties. Um, the Congress and the BJP, that are kind of the two dominant national parties, and um, they're proportion of women that they nominate has also fluctuated over time, gradually going up. But among the other smaller parties that have emerged since the 1980s in India, there really is a lot of diversity. Okay, so um, one party really doesn't get much above 5% women candidates. Other parties have got a bit better. Actually, this 
party, the All India Trinamool Congress from West Bengal, um, they've actually now got close to sort of a third of their women MPs in Parliament. Um, so it's quite uh, kind of promising in many ways. And just again, to show this kind of lack of incrementalism, at elections, different elections, you get different proportions of women candidates that fluctuates a lot. So it's trying to understand the kind of gatekeeping that goes on um, with parties is important. Talking a little bit about um, election campaigns, uh, we talked to a number of women MPs about their experiences of election campaigns. Of course, elections are much more than just the numerical outcome. They're exciting and highly performative events. And Wendy Singer argues that they're about the performance of citizenship. Mukalika Banerjee argues they provide insights into the social imaginaries of democracy. She also says Indian elections are particularly huge in scale, colorful, and loud. And to us, some of the women MPs we spoke to said that they were exhausting. One had a constituency that was 270 kilometers in length. Um, exciting, you can only sleep three to four hours a night continuously for like a month. Moving, I shall never forget the overwhelming experience of rural hospitality. Exacting, um, women, uh, constituents are very exacting, but also particularly for, for women, quite awkward um, in terms of access to bathrooms on the road, right? So one woman MP said she was campaigning for a candidate in 2015 when she fainted at the podium in the middle of her speech. And several months later, she explained that she'd been severely dehydrated as, as a result of a lack of access to bathroom. She said, I realized I hadn't had water for 18 hours. I was at a rally and I wasn't sure of the bathroom situation. Um, also, political careers pose challenges for balancing of social reproductive labour and public roles. Um, so some, uh, one woman, former woman MP was heavily pregnant when she contested a Lok Sabha by-election arising from the death of her late father. Um, and she uh, filed her nomination papers at the time her baby was due, and she was back on the campaign trail only 10 days after giving birth via an unplanned caesarean section. Um, they're also sometimes violent, gendered character assassination, misogynistic comments, um, uh, nothing I don't think that will be new to, to um, the kind of experts in, you know, that we've, uh, in this room that we know about, um, particularly the public discourse that's been talking about at the moment. Um, moving on, because I'm short of time. Um, diverse range of women in Parliament, um, but that uh, shows itself in different ways. Um, marginalised groups tend to get treated um, differently depending on which marginalised group they're from. So sometimes there is a double counting of marginality. Okay, So scheduled caste, low caste uh, women have actually increased in presence, but this hasn't been the same for Muslim women who are hugely <coughs> underrepresented in Parliament as well. Um, and just one more uh, thing to say that, yes, yeah, so... Um, but there are also senior Dalit women in politics like Mira Kumar. It was symbolically significant that she was the first Lok Sabha female speaker because she was also from the Dalit community, but from the political class. So even though she um, was from the Dalit community, she's very much um, part of the sort of political aristocracy in India. So it speaks in very dynamic, um, very dynamic ways. Okay. Um, Performing representation in parliamentary debates. Now, because of the increasing um, party fragmentation, you now have, I think at the moment, there's more than 37 parties represented in the Indian parliament. Now, when a lot of the senior party leadership are men, what that means is that if every party has to have a say, 
trying to get round all of the parties in Parliament in any given debate means that often the second or the third speaker that might be a woman MP don't often get a chance to speak. So that's been um, quite a, um, a difficult thing to tackle. Um, and there has been, more recently, there has been a, a considerable um, um, rise. One MP says it's sexism in the chamber. Um, even just the other day, there was a bit of a debate about um, the Prime Minister responding to um, a, a woman MP from the opposition. But I won't go into that because I, I don't have time. Um, but there, there have been a number of, um, number of issues related to sexism in the chamber. But I, this is just a visual representation of the, this idea that, on average, women MPs speak about the same, but these are all outliers, men MPs that tend to speak loads. And there's, this is like women MPs that don't really get to speak very much. That's in the 14th Lok Sabha, 2004-2009. It's got slightly better in recent times, so women are getting more chances to speak. Um, but it's still pretty much dominated, debates are still pretty much dominated by male MPs. Just a few comments um, about um, some particular debates. I know I'm really pushing it a bit now. Um, so in one debate, a Lok Sabha debate, about a large rural employment guarantee programme, this involved 80 MPs making speeches, but only four women. So generally, women don't necessarily get a chance to speak in Parliament, um, but it also depends on what the topic is. Except... If it's explicitly about women, such as the Domestic Violence Act, women get to speak loads. And this is where you see kind of uh, sometimes a lack of interest from uh, the Treasury benches and the, the front opposition benches as to how much they engage um, with these issues. OK. One last point um, about parliamentary committees. Um, it's interesting to note the Women and Equalities Committee um, set up here. There has been a committee for the empowerment of women in the Indian Parliament since the mid-90s. didn't quite get going until the late 90s, um, but overall it hasn't, had, um, it hasn't had the kind of influence that it needs to have because it hasn't been centrally involved in scrutinising legislation on women. That tends to be done by the departmentally related committees. And I'm going to skip ahead um, to this... Uh, not to kind of advertise, but one of the questions that we had was how does Parliament feel as a space, to what extent has women's contribution to Parliament been memorialised to the extent that it should be? Right? Is the history of women's contribution memorialised uh, in the Indian Parliament enough? So one of the... Um, there's actually two... There's only one post-independence woman politician represented in the Parliament, and that is uh, Indira Gandhi, the Prime Minister. There's a, there's a real absence of portraits, statues, etc., in Parliament. One of the things that um, I did with some uh, colleagues based in Delhi, this fantastic organisation, Feminism in India, please do have a look at their website. They produce fantastic um, journalism on gender issues. Is we held a Wikipedia editathon where we looked at some of the most marginalised um, women from the most marginalised communities that got into Parliament, marginalised regions in Parliament, and tried to look at the profile, the presence that they had on Wikipedia and noticed that they either had no or low profiles on Wikipedia, and we picked a few and basically tried to increase their profile. So um, really, just to summarise, um, different problems of accessing Parliament, party gatekeeping, parliamentary gatekeeping, visibility, seniority issues, speaking in debates. Um, numbers do matter. And this is a projection 
of where we might go <coughs> in the future if this is the most optimistic present um, projection, which 2058, we won't even be at 30% in the Indian Parliament, assuming that there isn't a kind of visible cap, uh, an, an invisible cap where they think, oh, there's too many women getting into Parliament. Uh, we have to kind of close it down. Um, so that's one of the most... So that's without any gender quota. And I've really impressed upon Sarah's patience, so I will finish there. Thank you for listening.